0: Hello, hello everyone, my name is John Edwards, with me as always is Zeke Baker, and together we make the Dad's Drinking Bourbon, wherever you are, whatever time it is, thank you very much for making us a part of your day.
1: Say hello to the folks, Zeke. Hello, hello, hope you guys have enjoyed some uh, fun-filled episodes recently. We've clearly had a blast and have a another wonderful episode teed up again for tonight. We hope that uh, you, you all enjoy, we, we certainly know we will.
0: This has been a jam-packed few months of guests, and tonight is no different because we have Sean Josephs, hashtag bourbon himself, from Pinhook Bourbon in the Dad's Drinking Bourbon Studio. Thank you very, very much for joining.
2: Great to be here, guys.
0: I I feel like that's a lie.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's genuinely great to be here.
0: But no, we are are very, very happy to have you. I think... um, the Derby is coming up. Whenever this comes out, it will be either a week or less than a week until the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. And what better way to celebrate than with the man who is behind a brand that is all based on horses? No better way. So we're going to talk about that and and the unique aspect of Pinhook Bourbon. But let's get right into the whiskey conversation. Sean, you actually weren't somebody who grew up in whiskey. I mean, you you were a restaurateur, you were a sommelier for wine. You you kind of fell into this business. What drew you into whiskey and what made you decide to, you know, be the man behind uh, blending together a lot of great bourbons and, and ryes?
2: It's a good question. I mean, I think uh, like most good things in life, dumb luck. Had a lot to do with it. Um, so, yeah, like I, I got my start in the restaurant business. I was a, a food runner, worked my way up to server, captain, got super interested in wine. This is obviously the very abridged version. Did some sommelier exams, got my certified sommelier from the American Sommelier Association. Did the first two levels of the Court of Master Sommeliers, so certified sommelier from there. Worked at some fancy restaurants uh, in New York City, Worked for a really big restaurant group called Be Our Guest, doing the wine thing, the sommelier thing. And just kind of along the way, got really interested in whiskey. And I think part of it honestly had to do with the fact that your job as a sommelier is really to assess wine quality relative to price. That's really your role. You're supposed to introduce great wine to your guests, uh, train your staff so they can learn about wine. But ultimately, anytime you taste a wine, you just really think about it relative to price, quality relative to complexity. And, you know, as part of my studies on the sommelier side, I did have to delve into the entire world of spirits. And so I start tasting these whiskeys, and you realize, like, wow, how about this whiskey I bought for $15 in a shop? Relative to price, it's delivering an incredible amount of complexity and deliciousness for not very much money. And by the way, you can open it, have a sip, not touch it for a year. It doesn't go bad. And, you know, so I think like a lot of people listening, and I know you two guys sitting here, I just really just started as a bourbon nerd and really enjoying trying a lot of different whiskeys.
0: Not to be too controversial right off the bat, but are the wine ratings as arbitrary and BS as the bourbon ratings, because whatever this scale out of a hundred, and, and that's something that Zeke and I kind of shy away from because I, I mean, how do you say something is an 87 versus a 93? Yeah. It's more, would you buy it? Right?
2: Correct. Yeah. It, it, I would agree. It's total bullshit. Um, yeah, I think the the wine ratings started with good intentions, which is the idea of like trying to separate, the good from the bad and helping consumers pick quality products and not being separated from their money for, um, subpar quality product. But that being said, yeah, what separates, uh, one man's 78 is someone else's 81, right? It doesn't really matter. It's pretty arbitrary. So I would agree wholeheartedly with that. No, that's to a large degree. What led John
1: and I to this whole, uh, experiment or or fun quote unquote. This is an experiment? Hey, either way. This this is the one night we get to enjoy ourselves and and shoot the shit with random folks and have a really good time. But (laughs) to loop it back in, it it was, yeah, people have a rating system. They drink things solely on their own and just give it a rating and you really can't put it in perspective. And, And that's why when someone really says well, is this better than that? x better than y etc we we do them blind and and we say hey look here's flavors here's cost here's all things considered and then you know we come up with a final ranking to say where's the bang for the buck what are you going to enjoy drinking what's not going to hurt your
2: hip well i think what, what you're saying that's fascinating to me is back when i was doing all my sommelier stuff we would do blind tasting groups the part of the point of the blind tasting groups was you know kind of honing your skills because having your blind tasting skills was an important part of being assessed on these exams. However, I will tell people to this day when I was sitting with a good group of people on a good day, you could sit with someone who could nail, like they, they knew the region and the grape and the vintage. And sometimes as crazy as it sounds, they could even pick the producer. The one thing that I would say people did most consistently was pick the quality level, meaning, that's one part of the the equation is you have to basically say, what quality level are we talking about? So if you're blind tasting Burgundy, you have to say, am I tasting just overall Burgone? Am I tasting village level? Am I tasting premier crew level? Am I tasting grand crew level? Like what what is the, the level? And I would say that even when people are off the mark on certain things, the experienced tasters were always really good at picking the quality level, right? And so I think it gets to the point of what you guys are talking about, which is so important, is how worthwhile is something relative to price? Yeah. Which I think is a, a really important thing.
0: <clears throat> I think Zeke and I have a hard time because we're, we're not always... I mean, we've tasted with people that can pick every little thing out of the whiskey and they can, they can say... I taste anise and on the nose I'm getting lavender and slight sure. tannins and this and that and this. And, and I think Zeke and I end up going to old factory senses half the time, as you'll hear when we talk about your 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 stuff. Yeah. But going back to kind of... So, you know, you were a sommelier. You, you started liking whiskey. How did you end up producing it?
2: Yeah, so that was... I mean, I'll, I'll give the the short version in the interest of time, but basically my wife opened a Spanish tapas restaurant in 2004. Um, And that was actually how I got my first experience in the restaurant industry was working in her restaurant as a food runner. But anyway, ultimately I went on this path of, you know, working in other restaurants and becoming a sommelier. And ultimately I became interested in also opening my own restaurant. And I feel like at the time, and this was 2007 in New York, that every week there was another wine bar opening and I had fallen in love with whiskey. And so I just kind of had this idea of, well, what about a restaurant, which instead of having a really nice wine list, has a really great whiskey list. And so really the idea of this restaurant that I opened in Brooklyn in 2004 called Char Number Four was an encyclopedic selection of American whiskey with really phenomenal food. And I had a chef who'd worked for Daniel Blude, who's one of the great chefs in New York, super experienced and talented, but he's from Texas. And so it was this idea of the smoked, grilled and charred flavors that go really great with bourbon. And we built this beautiful illuminated wall of whiskey. And the goal was to try to put every last bottle of American whiskey that we could find through distribution on that wall. I don't know for folks listening, I don't know how many people are, you know, have kind of followed the the timeline, but in 2008, there wasn't that much, much stuff compared to what there is today. 10 years later on that wall and certainly very little on the craft side, things have changed a lot. I mean, you open the restaurant,
0: you're getting kind of into there. Yeah. How do you end up down in Kentucky picking barrels yeah, Even
2: so the, the dumb luck just continued and being around it all the time, going to Kentucky, visiting distilleries, meeting suppliers when they came into town. It just made me interested and curious to get closer to the entire process. And so to me, the next logical thing was obviously not doing something really crazy like building a distillery, but it was like, could, could, we, <laughs> could we acquire some barrels and enjoy kind of the maturation process of those barrels and ultimately find a way to proof blend bottle and release them. Not with any sense of like having a brand or building anything, but just more out of, you know, just that kind of, like you, I think like you guys, you love whiskey. So what? like Just being if you, bored and having fun, being, right? Being bored, having fun. <laughs> All right. Our worst case scenario was, you know, we're going to spend too much time in Kentucky running around doing dumb stuff. And to <laughs> cut to the chase, we succeeded in that. But you're you know, describing my college years <laughs> to the team running around Kentucky doing dumb stuff. I should mention though, because it's a good time to mention because it, it does kind of frame what's happened in the whiskey world. So the first barrels we bought were in 2011. And I think that at the time we bought the barrels from MGP, but at the time that was called LDI and before it was bought by MGP. And honestly, we weren't clearly the first people to buy from them, but it wasn't kind of a known quantity at that point, meaning there was no bullet rye when we were starting to look around, you know, there wasn't really a lot of knowledge of what they were doing. so it took a lot of like kind of digging around to even it it sounds crazy now because everyone's like oh ldi mgp but at the time just it really just started with we want to get our own barrels where do we get those barrels so i started with dumb things like asking heaven hill if they would give me some (laughs) barrels which didn't go very well they Um, might now (laughs) maybe (laughs) who knows but at the time it was actually quite hard to find What we did find though, which is very interesting when we did find the barrels and we're like, Oh, there's this place apparently that has a lot of whiskey that, and they would sell it to us. A three-year-old bourbon barrel was $465 a barrel, 53 gallon. You know, you're talking about your standard barrel in 2011. And obviously that, you know, I, I would say, I would just say safely, it would cost 10 times that much if you could find said barrel.
0: Even being on the low side,
2: right? Correct. Yeah, it could be It could be a lot more than that.
0: So, you're telling me that we could have in 2011... Anybody could have done it. Yeah.
1: Steve, <laughs> where did we go wrong? 2011, I, I think I was still living in the desert. Were you? But I, I will circle back to say I, I love that you were at a, a, a tapas restaurant because inevitably those have been my favorite places to eat as i've gotten older and somehow with southern dialect and probably leaving off some syllables people always think i'm saying topless correct like oh you're going to the strip club that that's really advantageous
2: of you at 32 and you know it's five o'clock in the afternoon so it's funny you said that though because (laughs) my my wife's partner in the restaurant is from memphis and when they first started running around telling people they were going to open this restaurant. My wife's partner had an uncle who said, it's fun that we're joking about it, but literally thought <laughs> that they were going to open a Spanish topless restaurant. And he was like, this sounds like a great idea. No,
1: like I've, I've had <laughs> countless friends in town. And I'm like, oh, no, we need to go to this place. It's amazing. We'll just get small plates. They're yeah. all 5 to $8. We're just going to eat ourselves silly on random food. And they're like, we're going to a topless restaurant. Like, restaurant zeke like where are you going with this so no i love that the second thing i will uh, at least try to circle back on before i forget char number four you may not have been there when this happened but my at least most prized open willet is c is c14a which is a split between char number four and aster i may have said aster wrong but oh wow if you were there for that in either way i wish i would have known i would have brought it but it's a twenty-one-year-old Bernheim weeder. I haven't. I know the bottle. I, I've yet to pour anything that I owned to anyone else that I felt more proud to share. Sorry, I don't have it here. If I would have known the history, a, I would have tried a, to oblige. It's a great bottle. Did you help pick it?
2: No, I just was able to get it because <laughs> I think that you know this. The, but it goes back to the whole thing. Is you know in two thousand eight, and I think it, it is. I think it is interesting to kind of like reference a time frame in two thousand eight. When Char number no. 4 opened, we were ahead of our time, not because we were smart, but just, again, dumb luck. But the bourbon thing had not happened. And there was kind of infinite access to the kind of bottles that people would... And, and not just on the secondary market, but, I mean, I could pick up the phone every week and order... Twenty-five year old Rittenhouse. I could order seventeen year old uh, vintage bourbon and twenty-one year old vintage rye and twenty-three year old vintage rye. And um, pappy was plentiful. And my friends in other restaurants would not give me their pappy, but they would sell it to me at their cost because having a bottle that they paid one hundred and twenty-five bucks for would just sit on their shelf and was. They're like, I can't do anything with this. You can have it, and and that. That is emblematic, not just like, oh, that char number four had some impact on that, but just that since that time, that's how much things have changed, which is that you could get as much Pappy Van Winkle as you wanted. Well,
0: the sad thing is that I, I think of, and I think of my college years, and I lived across the street from a Kroger, and...
2: You could have collected it all day long.
0: The stuff that was in there, in Lexington, in... You know, 2002 to 2006 was... I could have got Tornado from um, E.H. Taylor. I could have got Unlimited Pappy.
1: Since it was New York and obviously times were much different as, as some folks know.
2: Did you land any of uh, Linnell's Red Hook? Of course I did. Absolutely. I can say this now because I haven't heard from her in a while. She actually gave me an angry phone call because we sourced it it wasn't available wholesale so we had gotten it you know basically through a friend and put it on the shelf and she's like you're not allowed she called me and like bitched me out you're not allowed to do that you can't have that (laughs) that was yeah i know you didn't get that through a distributor because that was for retail only and that but that was a great bottle and anyway sorry to segue for anyone listening but
0: that's a great bottle. Zeke's geeking out right the, now.
1: That's an epic rye that was sourced from KBD
2: Willet, whatever you want to call it. Great stuff. If you find one now, great label too. By the way, the, with the, a strong, with the the bicep thing, it was dope. Love it. The, they
1: sell for 10 k or more. Like it, it, it's by far one of the most epic pours anyone will ever talk about it's great. having. And I may have to walk out of the room now.
0: So let's go back. <laughs> well, let's take it back.
2: Let's go right.
0: Back. So you're. It's you're, a pen hook. It is 2011. Yeah. I I have to think that some of the stigma is almost there in going to places like LDI, MGP at that time too because. There was, I mean, I would even say in the past two, three years, there's been a huge shift in bias from NDPs actually going. I mean, there's the consensus that MGP is putting out good product. Yeah, you know, it's a nice shift with the advent of Smooth Ambler, Bell Mead, you guys, Blom Brothers, Boone County. Sure, there's a wealth of goodwill towards. MGP at the moment.
2: I think it's been a shift, but I also think it was funny for me. I never even, I mean, the interesting thing about a stigma is I never looked at it that way because again, i not to keep going back to the sommelier side, but I was coming from the wine side where the negotiant model for hundreds and hundreds of years has been a long lived idea, right? The idea that, you know, someone else grew the grapes and someone else even made the wine. But then you immediately take possession of it. And then it's all about the aging. It's about the aging and the blending. It's about what you decide to do with those barrels once they're in your possession. And I think that, not to get too philosophical about it, but I I think I also saw it as like, well, what's the difference between these larger distilleries that produce 100 different labels? They're essentially doing the same thing. They're taking three different recipes, a bourbon recipe, a rye recipe, and high rye recipe, or a weeded recipe, whatever it is. And from that, they're producing what they believe are all these different expressions. And so what's the difference from an outsider collecting some of those barrels from one of those people and say, I'm going to then produce my own expression.
1: Plenty of old, you know, Heaven Hill, KBD, etc. You'll see tons of labels, random proofs. End of the day,
2: they were all just dumping the same barrels. Correct. And who cares as long as it tastes good and you like it, right? I mean, but
0: I, I think the only difference is in bourbon, you know, pre Prohibition. You have the rectifiers adding the food coloring, Correct. adding the you know somewhat toxic uh, additives at some point.
2: Yeah, well, that's true, and that's, that's
0: where you get that bias. And I think it, it's not. I mean, it's funny to say that it's probably been 80, 90 years, 80, 90, hundred years of bias, right, for some of uh, that those rectifiers there. And it's only recently that I think that bias is going away. So where... Which is great. It's interesting for you coming from, you know, the wine side, you wouldn't have that bias where a straight up whiskey nerd... Correct. There's, there's that kind of, oh, rectifiers are bad. And I'm not saying that now. right? But let's go even back six years. There are people that are saying rectifiers yeah. are bad. You know, producing distilleries are good, rectifier bad. And then now it's almost like... It's, it's almost like MGP is... I mean, you can't find anybody right now that's saying... Oh, it's, MGP they don't make good bad. stuff. Yeah. yeah.
1: Correct. It's crazy. No, it's laughable. Anybody that tells you they don't like it, okay, let me fix ship a blind.
2: Correct. <laughs> I bet your favorite's going to be what you hate. You're bringing up to me an interesting point, though, is that the, <clears throat> the rectifiers at a certain time represented a sort of thinning out or basically taking a purer product and somehow diluting it, it, it not in a good way. But I think what's happening in the more recent years, and I'm not saying this to rub this in, but it's like the three of us sitting there all have a lot in common, meaning I was just someone who was like a whiskey enthusiast that happened to, along with my good friends and partners, acquire some barrels and try to do something with them. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of a new thing that's been happening a lot lately is you're not, Part of a generation of distillers, you're not part of yeah, no, a historic it's, it's distillery. People are having fun with their booze. You're people that love whiskey, and you're trying to do your best to make really, really good whiskey. Right? Yeah, and and, and and it goes back to the thing it, you know with respect to Pinhook, with what happened for us once we were hanging out in Kentucky, checking out, checking in on our barrels, and watching them age is that one of my partners, um, Jay Peterson, his really best friend from high school, this guy, Jamie Hill, was in in the thoroughbred horse business. And Jamie's dad, Dr. Uh, James Hill, was the track vet for Naira, so Belmont, Saratoga, Queens Aqueduct, and got really good at picking horses. And so in addition to being around the animals and caring for them, people started to come to him and say, Dr. Hill, what do you think of this horse? You know, do you think it's going to be a good thoroughbred? Turns out Dr. Hill and another guy go on this in on this horse 50-50 for $17,500. That horse is Seattle Slough who wins the Triple Crown in 1977. (laughs) So Jamie grows up in this world. We're hanging out in Kentucky. Jamie starts to introduce me to a world which I knew absolutely nothing about. So you kind of imagine it's like, I don't know. You meet a guy who's like the owner of an NBA team or something like that. And all of a sudden you're like, what's this basketball? You're, but you're getting to watch them practice and you're going to games. And so same thing. So Jamie's introducing, I mean, Jay, Jay and my, my other partner, Charles knew that world a bit, but for me, I'm getting introduced for the first time to like, watching horses train watching them breeze early morning at keeneland which is
0: Uh, one of the best things ever which is an amazing experience right it you know the keeneland meets going on uh right now it'll be over at the end of april but no matter what track you're at six o'clock in the morning at the track is the best time you will see if you think that horse racing is all about gambling i mean let me let the cat out of the bag for you for a minute horse racing is a the racing is a means to an end the the industry is based on breeding so it is you race to make your horse more attractive for breeding in the long run but you know just the the atmosphere at the track the people who are at the track at 6 a.m those are the people that are working grinding every day yeah and it's just it's the best time ever
2: it's really really cool and that's kind of a, it's great to hear you kind of because you know a lot better than i do but to to have you like frame it like that because that was kind of the experience for us that kind of had gave us our kind of epiphany our like chocolate and the peanut butter moment where you're like wait a minute bourbon horses kentucky it's the most obvious thing in the world we started looking at the landscape and we're like okay woodford is the official bourbon of the derby that's a once a year thing it's a label They put the same Woodford in the bottle. That's their thing. Makers will do commemorative bottling of a Derby winner, Triple Crown winner, that kind of thing. Blanton's has a horse on top. But (laughs) But what we started to see is none of them are connected to thoroughbred horse racing day in and day out, right? And so we started to think that there was an opportunity to better capture this amazing experience that, John, you're describing. And so... The idea that came about really was going to Jamie, who in addition to his pin hooking and for you know anyone who's listening who doesn't know, pin hooking is kind of this hedge against the racing side where you're buying weanlings, which are baby horses that have been weaned from their mothers and you sell them as a one-year-old. So it's basically like flipping a house and the pin hook is this flip. You buy a baby, you sell it as a one-year-old and you basically hope that your knowledge of that horse's lineage and your eye for its you know, how it looks physically will result in a horse that when you decide to sell it is going to be worth more than you paid for it. And that's a hedge against racing, which while it has potentially higher yield is very risky. And so Jamie also has a racing stable called Bourbon Lane Stable. And this was before we ever had this idea for a Pinhook um bourbon or pinhook rye. And each horse in Jamie's stable has bourbon in the name. And he just did that so that anytime you're at a race anywhere, whether you're at Ocala or you're at Santa Anita or you're at Pimlico, wherever you are, Keeneland churchill and you see a horse called bourbon something or something bourbon you know that's a bourbon lane horse so he was already doing he was already doing that
0: it's funny you say that i mean a a big family in racing is the ramses yeah but every single one of their horses has kitten yeah so yeah just an idea It's
2: like a branding yeah uh,
0: same same thing same idea it's funny because you know as you go through the lineage uh, in, in horse racing and this isn't for Sean. Sean knows this at now, you know, by now. But you always have an aspect of the horse that is your sire or mare right. is going to be in the name of the progeny. So, you know, if you have an AP Indy, you might have, you know, Zeke Indy is the the next right. horse that's coming down. There's something of that sire uh, that that's going to be brought down, or the mare, depending on you know what it is. So. Um, that's, that's great. Pretty cool.
2: Yeah. And that's a great segue, actually, because well, I'll I'll tie it back into like how we finally got to this idea of like what pinhook bourbon and pinhook rye is, but we're drinking uh, pinhook rye, which is this horse's bourbon and rye. So this horse's sire was McLean's music as a non McLean who wrote Bye bye, Miss American Pie and the good old boys <laughs> were drinking whiskey and rye. So hence the horse's name bourbon and rye, which is that connection. But so what we came to though, getting back to the, the idea of the horses was how can we more closely connect people to the idea of thoroughbred horse racing and, and, and whiskey. And what we came to was this idea of going to Jamie and saying, what if every release of pinhook bourbon or pinhook rye is connected to a bourbon lane horse But that's a horse that's just starting its racing career. So you can actually follow the career of the horse and see how it does. And as John knows all too well, you know, the reality is like, we asked Jamie, you know, pick the horse that you think has the best chance of making it to the Kentucky Derby. Well, there are 20 horses in the field and whatever, 34,000 foals (laughs) born each year. You know, the chances of making it to the Derby are quite slim, but we feel ultimately we will have a derby runner or if we're really lucky we'll have one that places. But, um, I think really the idea was how do you get people more into it? So the idea is once a year, a pinhook bourbon or a pinhook rye comes out, it's connected to a horse that just started. And through the pinhook website, you can follow, you can see the full lineage of the horse and you can follow what, what races are they in next? How did they place in the race? Where did they finish? and hopefully tying together the kind of uh experience at the racetrack you were talking about
0: well and i'm not just saying this because you're here and i'm not just saying this because of the fact that you know i used to do radio for horse racing and followed horse racing very
1: i'm closely. Pretty sure you sat at the track at 6 a.m naked that's just the vision i have oh, nobody wants to see me naked if i yeah, was at the that's track saying, that's the impression i'm getting here
0: uh, they put a saddle on me if they saw me naked at six in the morning at the track. But the the um, I, I just had to throw it out there. But you know the aspect that I like about you know the the releases is if you look at every single one of these and I do collect the bourbons and the rye, but you know each bottle is going to have aspects on the horse so not only do you have the abv the proof uh the the lot you also have the name of the horse how many hands it was and then a description of the horse is it a dark bay is it a chestnut is it a gelding and then when you go to the website and you're actually clicking on the bourbon or the rye whatever it is it says learn more about the horse at the bottom you click that you learn all about the horse at the bottom and these are actually – I mean, I think it takes for – and maybe this is because I'm dorking out because of the horse racing aspect of it, but it's kind of fun to be able to go to the track. You can't – and I don't want to pick on the brand that is the official, you know, Kentucky Derby yeah. uh, brand, but you can't go to the, the track and bet on Woodford Reserve. Correct. You could go and bet, you know, Woodford sponsors, sponsors a race – As does Makers. You know, the Makers Mark Mile is one of my favorite races at at Keeneland. But you can't go bet on Makers Mark. You can go bet on Bourbon Empire. You can bet on Urban Bourbon. You can bet on um, Bourbon and Rye. So these it almost takes the experience a little bit further because, you know, say you win money on bourbon. When has bourbon ever paid you back? (laughs) That's what I want to know.
2: You said it better than I did, but I I think we tried to encapsulate the entire thing, meaning you go into a store, you go to a restaurant, you can order a glass or buy a bottle of Penhook. That horse is in the game. And so then you can go to the next level, right? Now you, in a way, you own that horse. Now, hopefully you're not taking a gamble on what's in the bottle. We like to think we've already, you know, guaranteed that you're tasting a really good whiskey. But that horse is starting its career. It's a horse you could bet on. It's a horse that could make it to the Derby. It's a horse, in theory, that could win the Derby as, as, as long as the odds are on that. And we ultimately had the goal of tying people as closely as we could to what that experience is. And I think the cool thing, though, what I've seen is there's some people that don't want to take it that far, right? And they're just like... This is a cool-looking bottle, and it's got a horse on it, and this whiskey tastes really good. And we're fine with that. We're not demanding that people take it all the way. But for people who are interested, I think you can take it as far as you want, and you can take it as far as, like, when's this horse racing next? I'm putting money on them because I own a bottle of that whiskey, and I'm excited about it. You know.
0: I'm going to skip us ahead a little bit here. Zeke, I hope you don't mind.
2: No, no. That,
1: I was going to throw a yellow flag and interject saying I love everything we've done here. But there's been no mention of actual tasting and booze, and there we et cetera. Go. Which, ultimately, if we don't do that, then nobody wants to just hear us talk. We, we don't sound that good, much less we don't even look that good. So we need to have some.
0: Perfect. Give me two minutes, and I promise you we're going to get there. I just want to set the scene. You tell your wife that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. So let's go through there
2: were seven mm. there were seven releases. So Bur- we did seven releases of bourbon, correct?
0: Bourbon courage, yep. bourbonize, hashtag bourbon. Then we had bent on bourbon, urban bourbon, bourbon empire, and this last one bourbon resolution. Yep. All of these were seventy-five percent corn. This is something I find very interesting. 20.5% rye yeah. and 4.5% malted barley. Yeah. That's not a mash bill you typically hear from MGP. Again, going through these, the age of these started about 6 or 7 years yeah. in the beginning. It is now up to 9 years in bourbon resolution, right. so those are going up every year. The other thing that's interesting to know is that first release was 5,000 bottles. The subsequent releases were about 2000 2200 bottles yeah it's been going up
2: though yeah just with the rye just yeah with the so rye. basically the first bourbon release was the most and then it sold out so quickly like to like it sold out in two weeks in new york <laughs> and kentucky and we're like oh my god we're gonna run out of all of our barrels so we need to dial it back um and then it took us you know a while to figure out the rye and then the rye, we did 150 barrels, which, you know, in perspective, 150, obviously a lot more than 15, but you're talking about 6,800 six packs or, you know, 3,400 cases for the entire country. So still a pretty small, grand, uh, grand
1: scheme release. of things, Pretty n- tiny. not a, not a, a huge footprint.
0: So, the proof on these, uh, on the bourbons, they're all 90. Correct. It's 45% ABV. We talked about yep. the age. We talked about the, the number of barrels. The one that we have here that Zeke and I have been drinking on and making notes on was hashtag bourbon. That was the third release. Correct. It is, these come in at about $79 retail if you're able to find it in the store. Yeah. Now, knowing that there's only about 2,200 of these... A lot of people are getting these in other methods but you know it's not these aren't going up in a, a certain market crazy expensive I haven't seen things that are so much over retail that they are unattainable
1: yeah yeah no I, I would say the the pin hook is a a niche even in secondary markets there's folks that flock to it for various reasons nothing else with the, the release size, it, it's like plenty of other very small batch and or single barrel releases. There's folks that have had them, folks that haven't, and the ones that have them aren't going to tell many people about them if they enjoy them so they can still buy it for less. Yeah, I'm really and bummed that, that we're doing this episode right now because I'm screwed. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's secondary. It is what
0: it is. We had the hashtag bourbon. Zeke, give me the tasting notes as you've been writing them down, as we've been talking. Uh, tell, tell me what you think about this one.
1: Uh, nose-wise, the first thing that hit me was um, some type of cherry wood chips. <laughs> uh, I don't know the type of wood. Sorry about that. Smart. But it reminds me of uh, when my dad would smoke meat. And you'd have like cherry wood chips to just give that sweetness to the flavor of like a pork loin or whatever kind of meat he had in there behind that i picked up some light green grapes palette wise it really shifted i was kind of surprised i thought it was um, an interesting combination of ginger and root beer somewhere together i really couldn't pinpoint much on it that was my first thoughts after that I got Dr. Pepper, and then as I chewed and worked on it more, it reminded me of a couple of times I've ordered random pizza by the slice where you just throw toppings on there incessantly. It seemed like too much blue cheese. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, you, you know everything's a memory to me. That That's where I was, and that's where it ranged. I, I don't know. It's funny. it's funny
0: you should say that because you and I oftentimes don't have the same palate. And for this one on the nose, I had dark cherry chocolate, black cherry IBC cola is what I got on the nose. That cherry note, I'm kind of in awe and shocked that you and I are <laughs> you know, agreeing on something right now. Uh, the the taste, I said sweet dark chocolate, slight leather and tannins, but not unappealing. It was a little bit oaky, but not in a bad way. Like I just liked... It was dark fruit, dark chocolate, even on the the taste and and that. I think that oak was there. Knowing that the age was six to seven years, I was interested to see that there was a little bit of an oak taste on it for me, but I liked it because it kind of fit with the dark chocolate theme. The finish for me, I had nice lingering oak and chocolate. The oak kind of hit the roof of my mouth and, and lingered there for a long time. So it wasn't something that you're just going to sip and forget about. It's going to stay with you for a while. So I really I'm, I'm not saying this because Sean is sitting here. I really enjoyed this one. It did not have the typical MGP-ness that we typically see, but I the closest thing I think from MGP that I've had that is somewhat comparable would be the 12-year-old Boone County which, saying that this is Kind I mean, of I, I, I wouldn't go that
1: far. I mean, like... Um, at least I maybe, would. Like, finish-wise, the, the palate extended. It was somewhat dry, and then it really kind of looped back around to just a, a root beer flavor at its core. Where I ended up with the too much blue cheese kind of thing, it, it wasn't an oak or a, or a bitter. It, it was more... Maybe like a salt. I don't know. If you, if you get too much blue cheese on something, to me it's just salty. You pucker. But it, it wasn't over-oaked or aged. It, that, that's where the, the novelty twinge to it was. Uh, I don't know if it makes sense to everyone, but that's where I resonated too, like, in my mind with it. If it makes sense to you, that's all that matters. You're with me, Leather. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <sighs> No, that that's my favorite Chris (laughs)
1: Burger. (laughs) Who (laughs) doesn't (laughs) love (laughs) that (laughs) line?
0: What I would ask, bro, I mean, it's not often that you have to sit here and listen to two people that do you think we're off on uh, what we're actually getting or or No
2: and I look, I think honestly, I mean the biggest thing I learned doing going back to the wine thing is is very easy to acquire a lot of knowledge about wine. I did it because I was very intensely focused on learning about wine. So I was able to study and learn a lot of facts about wine in a short period of time. But the thing that you learn, and I'm saying this with the deepest respect, is that drinking is the most important thing, <laughs> right? So I can say that at one point I'd memorized all of the classified growths of Bordeaux of 1855, okay? That's a lot of memorizing. (laughs) But what does it mean if you can't say that you've tasted them all and you've tasted them all across multiple vintages? And so, to be honest, I know you guys are serious enthusiasts and you know your stuff, and so um, I'm the most respectful of people that drink a lot of whiskey we, we don't necessarily it. know our stuff we're just enthusiasts no you're
0: the only person
2: to me they're one and the same i mean i i i believe honestly that you guys have probably tasted you guys have tasted clearly from our conversations prior to recording this conversation you guys are aware of and have tasted a lot of whiskey that i'm not aware of so i would consider you guys to know way more than me about what's out there in the landscape. And so I'm 100% appreciative of any of your comments about how Penhook tastes. And I think that the whole thing that's interesting to me and is what makes this fun is when I go to blend Penhook, proof Penhook, and ultimately and it's a role that I'm really proud of and I really enjoy, I decide when you go to a store and you buy a bottle of Penhook, a lot of people help me, but I'm the one who made the final call about what you taste in the bottle. I believed, and Zeke said this very well earlier, and I'm not going to try to paraphrase him because I'll butcher it, but it's a feeling. It is a feeling in the moment because it's a moment when you decide that this is the thing that's going to be the thing that's going to be in the bottle for a year until the next thing comes along. And you just do go on a feeling of like, I feel great about this. And I feel like this tastes awesome and I'm excited. And I think that John, we touched on this a little bit earlier. I think originally when we proofed the bourbon, we proofed it at 90 because for the original release bourbon courage, I thought that tasted the best. And I was used to, because of the way the bourbon industry works of the idea that you like, you pick your proof and that's your proof. And so we, we kept our proof at 90 and we did so for seven releases. And it took me a while to understand, and having tasted enough whiskey, how big an effect the proof has on the final product. And it really took us until the rye to understand, for me to understand that where the proof is, is such a dramatic impact, and I, that I really like the idea of changing the proof. I love all the bourbons we did, but I, I'm really excited about the rye we have right now. Because I feel like, to me, this rye, besides the blending, is a result of proofing. We tasted it at 16 different proofs, between 80, which is, most people might know, is the lowest proof at which you could bottle a bourbon, and 120, which is barrel-proof. And I thought 93.5 was the most balanced and the best expression of the barrels we had. And that's the only reason it's 93.5. There's no other reason behind it, except that I think it's the... And to Zeke's point in that moment, I was like, this is the thing. This is awesome. And this is it. And I have to say, I've tasted this a lot over the last, you know, six, seven months since we bottled it. And I feel the same way tasting it tonight. I still feel great about it. Like you pour that for me. And I feel like for, for me, I'm always starting at zero. Like you put in a glass for me and I'm kind of like reassessing it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really happy with that. That was, we made a great call. And I'm just happy about the call we made. And our, our job is each time we do a new release is to just make the best call we can. It doesn't mean it's the best whiskey anyone ever made. It doesn't mean it's the smartest thing anyone ever did. It just means, in my mind, in that moment, when I'm just like, yes, that's it. That's awesome. That's what we're going to do. And we're done. And no, we have to live with it.
1: Like, that's the best and, by far, to I me, mean, possibly the hardest conclusion to come to. Especially as you're blending these barrels, it's just to literally say, all right, I'm done here. This is where I want it. I don't care what other barrels are out there. What other flavor profiles we have access to right now, this moment. Yeah. This taste, drop the hammer. We're done. Let's put it out. So be it. The next one will be the next one. But yeah, I mean, we all have fear of missing something. That's how I feel about editing every single one of our episodes. There's still barrels behind you to the left, right, whatever yeah. direction you're looking. Like the, the fact that you can just finalize it and come to closure and say, "I'm happy with this release." Yeah, there'll be a next one.
2: But you know what's cool to me? In, in and yeah. there'll be more. But to get but to that point, you just have to. But what's cool to me? <laughs> what's cool to me? And it's what got me into the restaurant industry, not just you know, working as a server and a food runner and then a sommelier, but actually a restaurant owner, you have to believe on some level that you're going to offer something to the conversation. And so when you open a restaurant, you're not saying, oh, I'm going to open the best restaurant that ever existed. You're just saying, I have something to say about what a restaurant can be. And my restaurant is my expression of what that is. I feel the same way about the whiskey. I don't There are too many great distilleries out there and too many great people also taking barrels and doing their NDP thing. It's not about who's the best. It's simply about taking the leap. But the leap is, which is interesting, is putting your name on it, right? You have to stand behind it. And I think there are probably a lot of people listening here and a lot of people that love whiskey that feel like they're not too far away from what any of us do. And they're right in that sense, meaning they would be like, Hey, I think this bottle is better than that bottle. i like this distillery better than that distillery. I like this single barrel better than that single barrel, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, if you're interested, you can, you know, kind of get be put in a position where you actually have to go public with your idea. So you're not just judging what other people are doing. You're actually saying like, this is me saying, this is what I think is great. And I think that's such an awesome thing, right? Yeah, it's I mean, when you put
1: the, uh, the huevos on the table, that's a whole new concept.
0: Put the
2: on the table. I thought that's a good way. To <laughs>
1: I mean, no.
0: So, like- so speaking of which, we're now moving into the rye, right? So we, we drank the bourbon. We're, we're getting into the rye. I need some more rye. Go ahead and get some more rye. Thank you. You did kind of, this is your name. This is This is what you're standing behind. You, you move to a rye from a bourbon in this release, which, you know, we could talk about what actually the thought process was behind that. But this is a two year old rye, two to three years. It's 46.25% ABV, 93.5 proof, 95% rye, 5% malted barley, comes in at about 35 bucks. Zeke, what'd you
1: get on this? We've been sipping on it for a while. Uh, with the rye, I had a nose, um, Fresh mint spritzer. Uh, no wintergreen, if that makes sense to people that dive into various ryes, especially younger ones. Um, it just had a bubbly sense to it. Palette-wise, I thought it was a really good mix of barley and rye balance. It had a, a decent chew. As it chewed, it seemed to me like a, a spiked raw honey. If you've had... Farm raw honey—it's it, different than what you get in the store—and there was an alcohol component to it. Sorry if that's too much elaboration. Um, beyond that, had um, more honey themes: young honeysuckle, honeydew, somewhere in there, greenish—if you want to put a color with it. Finish-wise, I thought it had a very enjoyable warmth. It wasn't too much, wasn't too little. Most people, if they drink a rye, they expect something to be there on the back end. This was right in the sweet spot. Sweet barley toward the back. I resonate to that. I'm a fan, admittedly. Uh, and, and just, again, kind of the, a singe. It told you it was there. Didn't hurt. Wasn't too light. But it balance, I guess I would say, was the key for this throughout. No, I would
0: agree with you, and it—it's almost. This is one of my favorite tasting notes, but it was almost that Goldilocks aspect of it, where you know it's not too hot, it's not too thin, it's just right. The nose for me was mint. I got that rye spice on there, but it was almost like that fresh meadow scent I get a lot of time with. The rye, it's almost like being in a field, you're actually smelling the the grain and and getting that aspect of it along with the mint for me. The taste, I, I did get some mint on the taste, slight tingle on the tongue and mouth, but not overwhelming. It was light and refreshing. I did get the honey and the sweetness there along with the, the spice and that tingle. The finish though, you know, for such a young rye. And I don't think age necessarily matters on a rye, but it, it just it lingered like an older rye. And I think that's the aspect where I want to bring age in, just in the sense that it stayed and stayed and stayed. And I almost got a little bit of oak, which I typically don't get from a rye, but I, I just got... It was a little bit darker on the finish for me and just stayed there... For a very long time like it was um yeah it was like one of those freshmen in in high school that ends up making friends with all the seniors and hanging out with them just it was i think you're a little oaky tonight
1: i maybe i am normally normally that's my dig well but but you're picking it up more than i am but I'm just getting it, it I see where you are I'm just laughing at it yeah based on where we normally are on our uh, our comparative notes but it
0: it just stayed and lingered like it was a you know a freshman that hangs out with the seniors it was and I I only say that because the darkness and the oakiness is something that I would expect from an older rye and and that light and refreshing is what I would expect from a younger rye I, I don't think the age matters on a ride. I think it's kind of what you like at the time and the season and the place, but it almost feels like it's ready to, to graduate. It feels like it's at the, the good spot, right? We, it's
2: what, what you guys are both saying, to me, like different expressions of the same thing, which is very gratifying to me, which is what we were trying to get to. Your analogy was amazing. The freshmens and the seniors and balance being another great word. We were looking for the most balanced expression of what we had in front of us. What I feel confident in having, you know, going back to saying, which is what we did, tasting it at 16 proofs between, you know, 80 and 120, the sweet spot was 93 to 97. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy what I tasted on either side of that, but we clearly found a sweet spot for where this was. And that's what we were trying to bottle. And you mentioned the honey notes and the farm honey. That's important to me because, like, that's interesting. Because to me, that says like I think of honeycomb, and the honeycomb is not just about the sweetness, but there's a savory component as well. Raw honey is raw not honey. Not it's, what a think of it's a different. It's a different. It's a different thing. Honey. And really appreciate the notes though, because you know, like I said, it's it's interesting for me. It's like if you go to the notes on the bourbon, to me, that's a little different because, like I said, we just. Determined to keep the proof the same. This was an exercise in like, okay, we proof it wherever we want. We're going to continue to proof it wherever we want. It was like an epiphany for me to understand that that was like a better approach. And what I know is that some of the proofs below the 93.5 were less balanced. And even though the alcohol was going down, they actually seemed more alcoholic. They seemed hotter. Yeah. And some of the proofs that were north didn't seem right either and we were just looking for the balance point. And that's why I like that you mentioned the word balance because I think that is I mean, that is the goal, right? And 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 it's appropriate too because I think I know really not too much about it, but I think they talk about horses being balanced as well, right? And John probably knows what that is better but it's just the idea of like the physicality it's like everything wants to be in balance and i think that's what we're looking for and
0: well what i would also say is that a, a good jockey when they're riding a horse they know when the right time to change the lead is and you know as you're running with a horse on one side of the track you you're basically have the horse is going to lead with one leg and then as you're going into the turn and, and you're going down to the back stretch and, and you're hitting that final turn, you're going to change the horse's lead. And it actually allows the horse to, as they change from one leg to the other going first, it actually gives them another boost of energy. So I would almost say that messing with the proof is almost like Pinhook changing their lead. And yeah. You're, you're kind of kicking it into the next gear to say, oh, you know, hey, here's where we were kind of going through the first turn and down the backstretch, but here's where we change our lead and we're really going to kick it into a high gear. And in speaking of changing your lead, you guys are actually moving. You were with MGP. You still do have some MGP juice left, but you're actually now resting your barrels at Castle and Key, and Castle and Key is now distilling... Uh, Bourbon and Rye for you. I think this is a whole other show and I hope to have you back again to talk about it, but the the stuff that you guys are doing is now led by you and Marianne Barnes, right? Yeah,
2: so, I mean, the dumb luck which seems to be the (laughs) recurring theme continues which is that Jamie Hill of Bourbon Lane Stable one of his oldest and dearest friends Will Arvin was the guy who decided that This distillery, the E.H. Taylor Distillery, which had been sitting defunct since whatever it was, 71 or 72, and no one... Everyone looked at it and was like, that's crazy.
0: It has great ponds in it, too.
2: It's beautiful. It's 110 acres. It's three miles from Woodford. It's it's in the Rolling Hills. It's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it has you know, existing infrastructure, a lot of which was still usable. And yet so many people saw it, knew what it was and, and didn't end up doing anything with that. And ultimately, um, they, you know, will. And then ultimately with, uh, with Wes Murray, they made the purchase, hired Marianne Barnes from Woodford and made her a partner and have gone on this amazing journey. And we were just lucky to be there from the beginning because of jamie's friendship with will and so long before they got to the point where they were now we were on board with them and so now we're lucky to call that our new home and so i was fortunate um to be able to sit down with marianne and create a unique mash bill um and it's just
0: for you guys right correct
2: yeah and that and i think that's a cool thing too and honestly like we take great pride in taking our MGP stuff and I think hopefully making our own unique representation of it. But now what we ultimately will have is a unique pin bourbon, a unique pin rye. Those barrels are already being filled, have been filled, are aging at Castle and Key. And so down the road, we'll segue out of our MGP product and we'll have 100% Castle and Key, which... Which is great because not only is it unique, a castle and key but it's unique to us meaning it's a product that no one else will have so I think that that for us and for me it, it kind of harkens back to the original thing which is like it really just started because I was a bourbon nerd and I wanted to get closer to it and so you start with like we're going to buy barrels from MGP other people can buy barrels from MGP and then everyone does their own thing with them and then you go to the next level where you're like well you don't have your own distillery but you're talking to the master distiller and you get to sit down and taste different mash bills or different yeasts and pick your own mash bills and so you're still not i don't know how to run any of that stuff i don't know what i'm doing but i just know (laughs) i tasted the stuff before it went into the barrel and i liked it and i'm super excited to see how it tastes after it ages i have no idea what that's going to be like
0: i think if there was a way for zeke and i to get into you know coming out with our own brand that would be the way we would do it zeke would you I mean, we, we, we don't have any of the overhead. All we have to do is pay people to do it for us, and we get to be involved in all the
1: decision-making. All I'm simply going to say is... Are you guys trying to say I'm living your dream? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do we need to revert back to the char number four, the Linnell days? <laughs> don't make me go cry in a corner, please. Hashtag um, living his best life. <laughs> Jesus but no the dumb luck I totally resonate to it dumb luck all the way I've swore by that for so many years um, it simply is what it is and you can't chalk it up to anything else I, I will say I, I do expect at some point a blend of products considering we did have a, a mixture of what was left over of some bourbon and rye tastings earlier the consensus was damn that's actually really yeah that was good. amazing
0: if any of you have hashtag continue. bourbon <laughs> and if you have release number three, hashtag bourbon and you put it with the bourbon and rye. What's the ratio,
1: Zeke?
2: Hit them up. It was somewhere oh, around 65-35, no. I think. 65 bourbon to 35 rye or no, no. 65 rye to 65 35 65 rye,
1: rye to 35 bourbon. It was bourbon. amazing. Zeke and I are working on blending uh, and, this and year. And laughably, as, as much as Sean tasted these things through and out. It's funny to put something for somebody and be like, I mean, here's your own, you know, juice. We just did a random mix of it. and like, damn, this tastes good.
2: (laughs) I love it, though. Good is good, good. and I think that's what's always kind of governed everything. Yeah, Yeah.
1: you you don't know what you know until you don't know it, and then you know it. So, honestly, my biggest takeaway from this, not to cut anything short, but simply was something that was mentioned by Sean early on was – quality relative to price this day and age it's so much more apparent than anything else at $35 this is rye rye you don't worry about age you worry about what somebody blended and how they put it in an expression that's all you ever need to think about buy this you won't regret it I've shared it with plenty of people plenty of others have have told me they've shared it as a plus one it's a great expression and who finds a good bottle at $35 in today's market? I hate to say it, it, it's sad to a degree,
0: but if you can find a good rye for $35, you know, considering that some of those even younger ryes, the one-year rye or the two-year rye and I'm not even talking about Peerless, are coming out for $60 to get a very, very good rye at $35. First of all, I think we just want to say thank you. I think it's easy to understand in talking to you that you have an attention to detail and an attention to quality although you might not know how to bake the cake you know when a cake tastes good and and (laughs) when to
1: send it back (laughs) there you go you're getting your analogy game better i love that you're stepping up finally i'm proud of you i do what i can (laughs) Um,
0: I, I think if anything, thank you for taking the time with us, but I mean, we've just really enjoyed the conversation. It's easy to, to understand how much of an enthusiast you are, not only just being putting your name behind a brand now, but just the fact that it's easier, I think, to do your job and where you are if you like it. If you didn't like it, it's really hard to do your job, and it's easy to see that you like it. Um, we should... Expect a bourbon and rye every year, right? Now Correct. that you put the rye out,
2: yeah. So yeah, so every you know the current plan is every fall you can expect a new bourbon and a new rye from Penhook. Each one having a new horse that is starting its career that you can follow. So two horses a year, two horses a year, and that's that's the current plan, and I that, uh, for the foreseeable future until you know. I think you guys brought up a great point, which is like, I'm like you guys, I'm ultimately guided by the, the bourbon enthusiast side more than anything. And so if we have more barrels that we can play with and we can do interesting things with them and we can age them and sauterne barrels or find other cool things to do with them, like we would love to kind of expand what we're doing, but all of that would just be around the idea of like continuing to do things that are exciting and interesting hopefully you know to everybody but obviously to us first and foremost i know you're talking about the whiskey side of it but you
0: know is there ever a chance that you might have a lot of your horses running in the same race together then
2: that's a great i mean you know i poor jamie like we all jump on him all the time we're like jamie this would just be so easy if you would just pick you know, a bunch of winners. <laughs> <laughs> When's our derby winner? Because this whole thing is a slam dunk if you well, just pick a derby winner or even a derby runner. But What happens yeah. if he puts him up in a claiming race so that somebody takes it that you guys don't <laughs> have your horse anymore? <laughs> we're, you know, all bets are off. We accept everything that goes with the reality of the horse world, so
0: well, it's all good. since it is derby week, I want to take two seconds. I, I did call in to uh, my my old employer and I was talking to the guys from the Horse Racing Radio Network I'm a little bummed the derby is going to be on May 5th Uh, Gronkowski
2: is out come on Gronk
0: so Gronk is no ah, longer partying we so it up in the Derby.
2: We are so excited.
0: Um, but, you know, the favorite right now is Justify. It's a Bob Baffert horse. Mike Smith is the jockey. You should know those guys. if you. It is a Windstar farm horse. It's not a Bourbon Lane Stables horse. Windstar has four horses in this race. I would throw out Justify at this point. It's 7-2. A lot of people think Magnum Moon coming in uh, at 6-1 is probably going to be the favorite. A couple horses to look out for here. Mendelssohn is the half-brother to Beholder. He actually ran two seconds under the track record in Dubai. Uh, Another horse to look out for here is Good Magic. It is good for the long shot. Won the Bluegrass Stakes at Keeneland in its last outing. However, the one I'm looking for right now is actually the son of Curlin and Vino Rosso. It is 15 to one, just won the Wood Memorial up in New York. The trainer is Todd Pletcher. The jockey is John Velasquez. And the interesting thing of this one is John Velasquez actually rode Audible and Noble Indy, which are two other horses in the race, and he decided to pick Vino Rosso for his mount in the Derby. So looking at this race, I, Zeke is, is looking at me funny, but I couldn't talk about the Derby or, or talk to Pinhook and not talk about the Derby. I am actually going to go... My trifecta would be Magnum, uh, Moon, Mendelssohn, and Vino Rosso. If I was doing the Superfecta,
1: I'd throw good magic in there as well. I mean, unless there's one called Go Dogs, (laughs) I don't give a shit.
0: Well, I I had to throw, (laughs) for those of you that are listening in the great state of Kentucky and you are looking at the Derby, that is our take. Zeke's just going to trust me on that one. Sean, we'll we'll see if Jamie said anything. But if he didn't, we'll get you
2: next time. We'll look out for um, comments from Jamie Hill, who's the horse part of the Penhook program. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> for now, we'll trust what he said.
0: We we really appreciate you coming on. We hope to have you on again. Talk about what you guys are doing as that Bourbon and Riot Castle and Key makes its way uh, forward a little more. I think. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We should come up there and try it with you. That's you, a done deal. Give you an opinion, um, but come down anytime. We're happy to have you. Any parting notes before you? Uh, before we sign off here?
2: No, I just, I, I mean, I just said no, but I guess I'll say yes. <laughs> um, I had so much fun. I, I think that more than anything, you know, the greatest shift in the world of of American whiskey has been the enthusiast being able to become part of the product and I think you know I've been lucky in a lot of ways but I'm just I just see myself as a result of that I don't see myself as any different from anyone else who loves whiskey and thinks they know what tastes good um I just happen to going back to the dumb luck theme I just happen to get lucky and and be in a position to to get to decide what's in a bottle but I don't know that I'm any more qualified than anyone else who loves whiskey and and, and thinks they know a great uh, a, a great glass when they encounter it. But uh, I feel extremely fortunate and I'm very appreciative for anyone who supports um, anything that we put out there and hopefully will continue to follow what we do because I keep learning as we go and I keep learning about blending and that, that really is where it started was the idea of getting a better understanding of it. And I do learn more. Like I said, I wouldn't, uh, if if I had to do it over, I would have proofed every of the first seven releases of bourbon, I would have proofed them differently. And the rye is a representation of understanding that. And we'll continue to continue to, you know, push forward and, and, and try to put the best thing in the bottle that we can. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you.
1: Zeke, any parting notes?
2: I'm still sighing about Brooklyn char number
1: four. Uh, I'm i I'm signing about China before. Uh, somehow I, I missed out on something here. Well <laughs> uh, you know, maybe we have to actually go to New Orleans instead of uh in New Kentucky.
0: Well we gotta go down to Shonta's. You might still have something uh, left. I got something to share.
2: Come and see me whenever you guys oh, want. Shit. Please.
0: So Closing this out, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We we really appreciate people like you taking the time to sit with us. We appreciate you all listening to us, whether or not you're listening to us on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Podknife, Spotify, iHeartRadio, YouTube, however you're listening to us. Thank you very much. Please leave us a five-star review. Tell us why you like us. Write it in there. If you don't like us, reach out to us directly. We want to make it better. You can find us on Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Find us on Twitter at Bourbon Dads. You can find Sean here on Instagram at Bourbon. You can also find Pinhook Bourbon on Facebook, Instagram, all those good things. Please go ahead and follow them. Drink their bourbon. Drink their rides. Good stuff. And I think I should close this saying the bourbon is actually going to find its way into Nashville... On, uh, in the fall, right? Correct.
2: Yeah, so we're going to have, in the fall, we'll have, this was our first rye, we'll have our second rye, and a bourbon that is younger than the previous bourbon releases, but also priced accordingly.
1: Well, we can't wait. Zeke, where else can the folks find us? Normally, I would say Nashville, Tennessee, which does happen, but I'm currently going to migrate towards Sean's home in New Orleans and try to find what <laughs> epic things he's holding on to. Breaking the entering is not, you know, I can deal with it. Oh, he's giving you an open invitation, so you're good. Okay, I feel better now. Well, thank you all for listening. <laughs> we hope you all have a good
0: day, night, and Zeke is going to be off in the fetal position crying in the corner, so <laughs> cheers.